At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. God created us for community, and with community comes conflict. It seems ever-present in our day-to-day lives, from little things to big things. In today's society, cancel culture is prevalent, and when there's conflict in our lives, it can be easy to turn to the ways of canceling one another. Knowing how to resolve conflict lovingly is an essential component of our lives. When we resolve conflicts out of love, we honor Christ. Join us in our new series, Conflicted, Pursuing Peace in a Cancel Culture, where we'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew to see what Jesus has to say about handling conflict. We'll turn our attention to God's Word. So that was plenty of time to find Matthew chapter 18. Um, But I'm going to take a moment and uh, read for us our passage that we're going to look at this morning, um, and we're, then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in and, uh, and unpack it together. So we're in Matthew 18. I'm going to be reading verses 7 through 9 this morning. Jesus says, woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we hear these words of your son, and they are sobering. And so uh, I pray as we seek to engage them this morning that you would give us hearts to receive um, what you want to say through them. It's easy sometimes when we hear sobering or challenging words for us naturally, God, to Uh, maybe tune out or disconnect or to be fearful or whatever it is, God. But I pray instead that you would give our hearts to be ones that are open to what you have to say. That these words would be words not of condemnation, but of conviction, of call, of leading us towards being the sort of people and community that you want us to be. So God, we want to invite your spirit to come to each one of us now to move through these words, to conform us more into the image of Christ and to be the sort of community that lives under his rule and reign as Lord. Would you do your work in us and through us right now, Lord, by the power of your spirit for the glory of your son? I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, When I was in college, I had um, a TV show that I loved. It was called Most Extreme Elimination Challenge. Some of you might remember the show, you might not. The show was really interesting. It was actually the, the real show of it was a Japanese game show called Takashi's Castle that they took and then overdubbed with humorous commentary. And Takashi's Castle, that show was essentially contestants who would come and face ridiculous challenges that would usually end in some sort of 
harm or spectacular fail or whatever it is. If you've ever seen the show, um, the American show Wipeout, that show is based off Takashi's Castle and Most Extreme Elimination Challenge. So they would have contestants come and they would do crazy things. Like they'd have like three doors and the contestants had to run at the door and one of the doors opened and the other two were solid walls. So you can imagine what would happen if you run full speed and hit a solid wall, right? This was the whole thing. And it was funny as a college student. And to be honest with you, it's probably funny now as an adult to be. Um, but one of, my, one of my favorite of the, of the contests that they had to do was um, uh, a challenge called the stepping or skipping stones. And contestants would come up to a small kind of body of water, like pond, uh, river, and there were a series of stones that they had to step on to get across to the other side, that they actually had to run across. Now, the catch was that some of those stones immediately sank. So you would see contestants come up full sprint, stepping on the stones, and then one would give out and they would splatter spectacularly, right? Like rib shots to the chest, fall in the water. It was great. It was so much fun to watch. And then there was always some crazy commentary by Kenny Blankenship or whatever the host, other than the host name. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The rest of you, YouTube it this afternoon. It's worth a good laugh. So, um, but it was one of my, one of my favorite little contests. Last week, we kicked off this series that we're calling Conflicted. In Matthew 18, Jesus kind of lays out a vision for his community. And Jesus' vision for his community, for those that would live under his rule and reign as Lord, is that he wants them to be a community that's in the world, but not of the world. Jesus recognizes that the world is marked by division and hostility and sin, and his desire is that his community would actually be different, that it would be a community that's marked by flourishing, by peace, by harmony, by healthy relationships, even amidst a world of sin and conflict and division. And Jesus calls his people to embrace some certain postures and practices to be that sort of community. Last week, we looked at kind of the first one in this key teaching of Jesus in Matthew 18, that we're to be a people who embrace a posture of humility, that we're called to be people who are like a child, who take the lowest position in order to help others flourish. But as Jesus kind of ends the first part of his teaching that we looked at last week, he gives a pretty significant warning. In verse 6, he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. For Jesus, people have a role in how people actually experience the shalom or the flourishing life that he has for them and for their community. He recognizes that people can either be helps or hindrances. They can either be stable stones that people step and that help people in their journey of faith and what it means to experience the flourishing life of his kingdom, or they can be sinking stones, those that call people to trip or to stumble or to fall away from his way and his kingdom. And Jesus's warning was clear. We saw it last week that we should be the sort of people that seek to actually help build up the faith of others and not hinder the faith of others. That we have a role to play. 
We, we all recognize in the life of community that we can potentially hinder people in their journey, hinder peace, hinder flourishing, hinder reconciliation. Right, how, how many of you have ever been in um, a conversation, maybe it's online, maybe it's with some friends, and someone just says the wrong comment, and suddenly that thing goes nuclear? Right? Like, like it was like pretty mundane, and then somebody says one thing, and it's like, whoa, this got real tense real quick. We, we recognize, we, we've all been in experiences that we have a role to play, even within the relationships that we have with one another. How many of you have ever been hindered in your own journey of faith by the actions of someone else? I bet if we went around the room, almost everybody would have some sort of story to share. But... How many of you, and myself included, have probably played some sort of role in hindering someone else in their own life and journey? We all recognize humanity and who we, have as, who we are as people. We have this potential for help or for harm, to be an encouragement, to help things flourish, or to help things move towards detriment and destruction. Jesus desires for us to be a help to be stable stones, not the sort of stones that trip people up, but actually help people in their journey of faith and experiencing his life and his kingdom. But the question is, how do we actually do that? How can we be the sort of people that are helpful to others and not hindrances? Well, Jesus builds off of what he says in verse 6, in verses 7 and 9, to give us, I think, two ways in which you and I can be helps and not hindrances in encouraging and building up the faith of others. But as Jesus does that, he uses the language of warning and challenge. You probably already felt that a little bit when I read the passage earlier. He uses some strong words because as he calls his community to avoid being a hindrance, that is actually the way in which we can become a help to one another in the journey of the kingdom and being the sort of community that he desires for us to be. So two things we see in this text that I think Jesus calls us to. The first one we see right away in verse 7. Hear what it says again. I'm actually going to start in verse 6 so you can hear the flow. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Right? Jesus says, better a heinous death than to be someone who causes another person to sin. Then he, re- then he gives the point. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Jesus' first way that he shows us that we can be a help and not a hindrance is that we should not lead others into sin. He builds off this reality of the millstone and the call to say, woe, woe to the world for temptations to sin. He actually gives two woes in this passage. And the word woe, it's, it's an intense statement that involves anger and grief. But in the Old Testament, it's actually a prophetic divine judgment. It's a statement to use of God's judgment over something. It's meant to give warning to those that it addresses. And Jesus gives two warnings by his woes. The first woe that he gives is to the world, he says. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. The world here in Jesus' language is the system of human rebellion that's under the rule of the enemy. It's the culture that's opposed to God and his kingdom. 
Remember, Jesus wants his community to be in the world, in and amongst this system, but not of the world, because the world is actually opposed to God and his ways and his kingdom. It's marked by sin, and it's marked by those who are in rebellion against God. And Jesus says, woe to the world. Why? Because it brings temptations to sin. Now, that phrase that we translate temptation to sin is actually the exact phrase that Jesus used in verse 6 when he talked about whoever causes one to sin. We looked at it last week. It's the Greek word scandalon. It's where we get our English word scandal. And it literally means a trap or a stumbling block. But Jesus really uses this as a reference to any action or circumstance that would lead someone astray into sin or into apostasy or false belief. It's the thing that causes someone to leave the way of Jesus and to follow the way of the world. And Jesus is clear that the culture of the sin in the world causes people to turn from God's way and to continue in a system that's actually opposed to him and his kingdom. And Jesus gives warning to that reality. But he then continues to not only give a warning to the world, but he gives a warning to the ones that cause that temptation to come. Right? For it is necessary that temptations come. Jesus recognizes that in God's sovereign plan, he's allowed for the culture of sin to exist in the world, out of our human freedom and our act of rebellion against him. And so even though that's present, though, he gives a second warning, which out of that it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. For Jesus... The warning is given not just to the world in general, but to the ones that would be the means that would cause someone else to fall away from the kingdom, to sin and fall into false belief. Jesus' woe is strong here. It's not just a woe against the sin and culture. It's a woe to those that would participate in that in such a way that it would lead others into sin and false belief. For Jesus, there's a warning about being a stumbling block or a trap or a sinking stone in the life of others that hinders them from experiencing the kingdom. It might be in the world in general, but it shouldn't come through you. Maybe think of it like this, right? When COVID-19 entered our world in 2020, we were all suddenly faced with a new threat and a threat that we didn't fully understand at the time. And prior to having more understanding with vaccinations and treatments and all those things, all we knew was there was now a new threat in the world. And it was in the world in general, right? We didn't fully understand, but we knew that it was present and a threat. But during that season, especially early on, we all felt the sense of responsibility that we didn't want to be the sort of person that would be the means by which COVID potentially would be spread to other people, especially vulnerable populations. We knew it was out there general, but we had a sense that it, we didn't want it to come through us. And so we embraced a posture of caution and care. Right? We, we did social distancing and quarantining and limited contact. And I'm not here to have any sort of discussion about the effectiveness or ineffectiveness or, or, or all of that. Right? I realize you bring up COVID and everybody's got an opinion. Can we just set that aside and just take the illustration for what it is for a second? Okay? We embraced that early on because of the reality of the threat in general. So we were cautious and we were careful. 
What Jesus is trying to say is sin is in the world, but his followers should embrace a posture of carefulness and caution for others. It might be out there, but we don't want to be the ones that spread it towards other people or that cause others to fall away from Christ, to be a hindrance in their journey. You see, we live in a hyper-individualistic culture in the West. We worry about us. And our mentality is, you worry about your junk. But Jesus understands that, no, there's not only a responsibility to yourself, but there's also a responsibility in community, that there's a collective reality that we must embrace and be mindful of. We don't necessarily intuitively feel that, but it's present in the language and the call that Jesus has. And what Jesus wants you to say is out of the responsibility that you have, you need to seek to be a help and not a hindrance. And part of the way that you're a help and not a hindrance is that when it comes to sin, you approach life with a certain caution and care in how that could potentially affect others. The impact it could have on their life, not only just in sin, but also in the freedom that God gives you. That this is our posture. I think we get a great picture of this in the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul deals with the issue of food sacrificed to idols. And as he does, he gives some really wise words that I think help give a picture of what this posture looks like within the Christian community. He says this in 1 Corinthians 8, 8. He says, food will not commend us to God, We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So here Paul begins the passage. He says, hey, food doesn't matter. Food isn't what makes us godly. Whether it was sacrificed to an idol or not, that isn't ultimately what makes us godly. There's freedom there. But look where he goes from that. He says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block, there's that phrase, to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge of eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and sisters and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble." So Paul says, I have freedom. Food isn't what makes me see godly. But if by my eating this food, it would cause someone else to stumble, then I won't eat it because I don't want to be a hindrance. Listen, scripture gives a lot of freedom to the way in which we live life. You're not going to find a Bible verse on what food to eat or what not to eat. You're not going to find a Bible verse that tells you what movies to watch or shows to consume, whether you should have a glass of wine with dinner or not, what clothes to wear what words are okay or not okay, how to engage social media, right? God's given us wisdom and conscience and his spirit to help guide that. And we have a lot of freedom to live those out that aren't sin. But the lens that Jesus calls us towards and the lens that he calls his community towards is to ask the question, how does my freedom impact those around me? And if my freedom causes me to be a hindrance to them, then I will restrict my freedom in order to not be a hindrance, but actually be a help. And so we need to embrace a lens and a posture to recognize the potential impact that we might have, whether that's meat sacrificed to idols or the online comments that you post this week. 
to have a lens that says, how will this potentially impact those around me? And if it hinders them, then I restrict myself because I don't want to be a hindrance. I want to be a help because if I'm a hindrance, then the community around me will not experience the flourishing of the kingdom. Think through the practices of your life, your time, your activities, what you do. Ask, what impact are those having on people around me? And if you find that they're having an impact that might hinder them in their journey, then be willing to make the necessary correction. Don't lead others into sin. That's how you cannot be a hindrance and be a help. But as we approach our lives with a lens towards others, Jesus also gives us a second lens that I think helps us to be a help and not a hindrance, which is don't lead others into sin, but his second point is lead actually by removing your own sin. Look what he says in verse 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin. Now notice the shift in language that Jesus has here. In verse 7, he speaks in general terms. Woe to the world. Woe to the one. But now he turns to the personal pronoun. He focuses his lens on his disciples. And he says, if you, your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus has actually said these words before in Matthew during his first major discourse in Matthew chapter 5. But he brings it up again because he recognizes how necessary it is for a flourishing community under his rule and reign. His language here is figurative. He's not saying you literally need to cut your hand or foot off or to gouge out your eye, but it's intense, meaning he uses this in a hyperbolic way to help you realize the severeness of what he's calling you to. Jesus knows that sin is a serious threat, both to people's lives and to their eternal destiny. And so his call is take sin seriously. And in taking it seriously, just as if your hand or eye or foot would cause you to sin, then remove the things in your life that might cause you to sin from your life. That's the sort of length you should go to, to seek to remove sin because of how serious a threat it is to you and to the community around you. And his reasoning for that severity is clear. For Jesus, it is better to suffer temporary consequences in your life than eternal punishment. Right? He says, if your hand cause or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Why? It's better for you to enter life. He uses that phrase twice. And that phrase to enter life is shorthand for Jesus to enter the, for, to enter the life of the age to come. The prophets had told that there would be a time when God would come and fully establish his kingdom, where he would remove sin from the earth and remove the active rebellion that was against him and establish a new heaven and a new earth under the reign of the Messiah for all time. And Jesus says, it's better to enter that life maimed than it is to suffer the consequences of judgment that comes when God fully establishes his kingdom. The language here for what we use, especially in verse 9, for the idea of hell is actually the term Gehenna. And Gehenna was a valley that was outside of Jerusalem. 
And it was in the valley of Gehenna that God had actually brought judgment against those that had led in idol worship in his community where they were actually um, executed for um, their sin and idolatry and the way that they had harmed Israel. And so by the time the word was used in Jesus's day, it had become a shorthand phrase for the final judgment that God would bring, where he would remove sin from the earth, where he would judge those who were in rebellion from, uh, against him, and he would remove them into eternal judgment, right? An eternal separation from him. That's what we mean by the language of hell. Hell is to be eternally separated from the life of God and to experience his full and final judgment. And Jesus is clear that sin and its consequences affect not only this life, but they affect our eternal reality. That where sin is present, judgment will come. And so his point is, it's better to be maimed. It's better to lose a hand or foot or eye. Not literally. The way you would say that is, it's better to suffer temporary consequences in your life by being active in removing sin than suffering eternal consequences of being separated from God. And so his call is, take sin seriously and seek to remove it. Remove it from yourself and seek to be the sort of community that doesn't tolerate those that continue to lead people into it. For Jesus, sin is not something to be welcomed, accepted, trifled with, tolerated, made okay. It's so severe and its consequences are so severe that the life of the follower of him has only one option. Remove it at any cost. That we're to be vigilant in our pursuit of removing sin from our lives in order to be a flourishing community. Again, I think we have an active illustration in this in the way that we lived through the early stages of COVID. I'm not trying to bring up bad memories, but I just think it's helpful to help us give a lens, right? When that came, we knew there was deadly potential. And so in the beginning, in recognizing that reality, we were incredibly vigilant. Now, we look back on some of those things now and we go like, I'm not sure if that was actually helpful or not. But at the time, we didn't know. We just knew there was a deadly threat. And because of that, we were vigilant, right? We were like wiping down every surface in our house. We're just Lysoling everywhere we can. I remember I walked into the West Bloomfield. I still have this. I walked into the West Bloomfield post office during COVID, the early stages of COVID, and it literally looked like someone had gone to Home Depot and just bought every shower curtain they could and plastic painting sheet and just hung it all over the entire place. Like you walked in and you were like, what is happening here? Right? And, and it's like, we can look back on some of that now, but at the time we recognized the seriousness of the threat. And so we were vigilant. We were active. We did whatever was necessary because we didn't want that exposure to come towards us or our community. What Jesus is saying is you need to have that sort of vigilance in your life when it comes to the reality of sin. Physical death is one thing. Eternal death is way worse and if that's the case, then we would be vigilant. We wouldn't hang shower curtains. We would go to greater lengths, more severe lengths, to seek to be the sort of people that don't let sin be tolerated and continue within our lives. It is deadly, more deadly than anything. That's why the reformer John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. When you recognize how deadly potential it is, you only have one option. Be vigilant to remove it at any cost. 
Don't mess around with sin in your life. You will suffer consequences now that you don't even know how bad it is. But even worse, you will suffer eternal consequences that, will, that you will suffer forever. You cannot come to a point and be a follower of Jesus and give an okay to your sin. You can't. You can't like, ah, that's not that big a deal. Oh, well, God doesn't really care. He cares. He cares so much he's going to judge it. And he knows it's the worst thing for you and your community. So don't tolerate it. Don't mess around with it. Don't welcome it. Take it seriously. And I say this with intensity because, listen, I've been a pastor long enough and I've preached the message of Jesus and the reality of sin long enough to know there are people in this room that are tuning me out right now that you have sin in your life that you've been okay with and you will suffer consequences that you never even thought you would because you just keep being okay with it. And Jesus is trying to come and say, don't be okay with it. I don't want you to suffer those consequences. I don't want your community to suffer those consequences. I want you to experience the flourishing life that I have. Take it seriously. Cut it out. Do what you have to do. So you can experience flourishing and the life around you and the community around you can experience flourishing. Now, I know that oftentimes the response comes at some point. Well, if that's what Jesus calls us to, is Jesus calling us then to perfection here? Like the only way that we actually experiencing flourishing in life is I have to be perfect? And if that's the case, how can there be any hope for all of us? Any of us? Right, because I recognize we all struggle with sin, right? If perfection is the call, I'm the first one out and you're right behind me because I can look right back at this week and be like, well, I did things there that I shouldn't have done and I didn't do things there that I should have done. So if that's what Jesus is calling us to in order for us to experience salvation, then like, is there really any hope for all of us? I don't think what Jesus is calling us to here is perfection for the sake of salvation, And I'll give you two reasons why. One, the truth of Jesus' ministry is that he came for the forgiveness of sins. He makes that clear. The teachings of Scripture make that clear. It was Jesus who said, For I came to seek and save that which is lost. It was Jesus who said, For I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many His whole ministry was to come and be the obedient, perfect son and then offer himself as a willing sacrifice on behalf of sinners in order to save us. His death on the cross was to deal with our sin. Jesus didn't come to just tell us we have a sin problem and then leave us to figure it out. He came to deal with sin itself by offering himself as the ransom and sacrifice for sins. So if Jesus' method of salvation is clean yourself up and get perfect here, then it stands in contrast to all the other verses and calls of what he actually came to do. He came for the forgiveness of sins. The call here is not to perfection in order to experience salvation. So that's one point of why I don't think that's what he calls here. The second is the language here is not the entire removal of sin The language here is to remove the scandalon. It's the same word used throughout the verses. It's the cause of sin. It's the stumbling block. It's the trap. 
For what Jesus is saying here is seek to be the person that removes the cause of sin from your life. The thing that continually traps you up or trips you up. Because in that, you will seek to become the sort of person that doesn't trip up other people. And that the community should be one that also removes those that cause to sin. That's why the whole language of the New Testament deals significantly with false teachers. Those that would lead people into false belief or practices that were contrary to the life of the kingdom. Because Jesus seeks for us to be a community that takes sin seriously. And takes those that would lead us away from the way of Jesus seriously. So I don't think Jesus is demanding perfection. I think what he is calling us to is to embrace a posture of repentance. That to genuinely be someone that's marked by him as Lord and that is part of his community will not only embrace a posture of humility like we looked at last week, but will embrace a posture of repentance. Repentance just means to turn. That's what the word means in the New Testament. It means if I'm heading this direction and I repent, I turn from that and I head a new direction. And the language Jesus uses here, he begins his ministry with it is, be the sort of person that recognizes that you're trapped in a world of sin and human rebellion. You are an active agent in rebellion against God. To repent is to turn from that way and to embrace the way of the kingdom. To submit to Jesus as Lord and to live and seek to live in obedience with his word and what he says. And so Jesus is trying to say, be the sort of people who practice repentance. Repentance isn't just a one-time thing. Repentance is a posture with which we embrace, and it's how the Christian is called to relate to sin in their life. This past week, we celebrated um, one of the great holidays, I think, in history. And I'm not talking about Halloween. That is not a holiday worth celebrating in my book. But there's something significant that happened on that same day. So October 31st is also known as Reformation Day. It's where we celebrate or remember when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the door in Wittenberg, and he initiated the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. It was a recapturing of the gospel and the truth of God's word. It wasn't perfect, but there were some serious issues that had happened in the church, and the Reformation sought to return the church back to the truth of God's word and the gospel. And Luther certainly wasn't perfect. He had his issues, right? Like everyone does. As I was reminded a long time ago, there are no great people. There are only people God uses greatly. And Luther's one of those. He had his issues. But I think Luther got some things right. And one of the things he got right was the very first theses that he wrote on that piece of paper that he nailed to the door of that church over 500 years ago. He wrote this to start that document. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Hear that again. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The posture of a Christian that brings flourishing in their life and flourishing in their community is a posture of repentance when it comes to sin. It's to be the sort of person that does not tolerate and continue on the path, but when they're confronted with the reality of sin, they seek to turn from it. It doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. 
but it means you have the sort of sense that when the Spirit brings conviction, you don't try to tolerate the things that are not of the way of Jesus, but are of the way of the world. To embrace humility, to be the sort of person that's not a hindrance, but a help, is to live life with a continual posture of repentance. You say, how do we do that? Well, first, it begins by recognizing that you are sinful and that you cannot save yourself because of your sin. That apart from Jesus, you deserve the judgment of God and the eternal separation from him because you have been in active rebellion against him. But repentance is to turn from that place, to recognize you can't save yourself and to trust in the saving work of Jesus that he came to die for your sins, that that's your only hope of salvation, and that he rose again to conquer Satan's sin and death so that you could experience the life, the flourishing life of God's kingdom that starts now and carries on into eternity. That's why Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved Your salvation is not in your perfection. Your salvation is in Jesus. And so repentance is turning from yourself and trusting in him. But then it's embracing that posture in the way in which you live. It's to recognize that you're a sinner and you're continually in need of God's grace. And it's in that that we become a people who recognize our sin and then seek to turn from it. That's why the Apostle John would write in 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. See, to turn from sin is to admit, I have a sin problem, I'm prone towards sin. But then he goes on to say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, the Christian is one who's readily willing to admit and confess their sins because they know that there's forgiveness in Jesus. And confession is the way in which we bring things into the light so that we can experience the healing grace of God. And then we turn from those things and embrace his path. And when we do that, when we're a people of repentance and confession, embracing the forgiveness that God has, that's how we become a help and not a hindrance. That's how we become stable stones to help people in the journey of faith. Listen, I spent many an hour laughing humorously watching MXC as I saw people hit sinking stones and splatter spectacularly in the water. I don't laugh so spectacularly when I watch the effects and consequences that sin has in the life of the people I know and the community that I'm a part of. And I don't think God does either. And that's why he invites us and calls us to be a people of repentance. He knows how serious it is. But the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus, we can be forgiven from our sin. We can turn from it and find a new way and the flourishing life that God has for us. And as we do that, we then get to become a help for other people's journeys as well. And so the invitation today is let's be a people who embrace a posture of repentance. And to do that this morning, I actually want to take a few moments together and pray as an act of just communal repentance before the Lord. And 
then we're going to take communion together and be reminded of what God has done for us. And so I have a prayer for us that we're going to engage. I'll lead in the majority of it, but then I'm going to ask you for some response. And the response is for us as a people to just acknowledge the reality of our sinfulness, to just confess that before the Lord. To bring that before him. And then I'll give, we'll give a moment for some personal confession if there's anything in your heart that God's asking you to bring before him. Because it's from that place, it's from the acknowledgement of sin that we then get to receive the grace of God and the forgiveness over our sin. And so I'm going to pray what's in white and I'm just going to invite you to respond with what's in yellow. And through this, we'll embrace a posture of confession together as a people so that we might be a people of repentance. So would you pray with me? Most holy and merciful Father, we confess to you and to one another and to all of God's people in heaven and on earth that we have sinned by our own fault in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not forgiven others as we have been forgiven. Have mercy on us, Lord. We have been deaf to your call to serve as Jesus served us. We have not been true to the mind of Jesus. We have grieved your Holy Spirit. Have mercy on us, we confess to you, Lord, all our past unfaithfulness, the pride, hypocrisy, and impatience of our lives. We confess to you, Lord. Our self-centered lives and ways and the suffering we cause for other people, we confess to you, Lord. Our excessive love of worldly goods and comforts and our jealousy and envy of those more fortunate than ourselves, we confess our pride and tendency to see ourselves above and better than those less fortunate and to falsely judge ourselves worthy by our achievements, gifts, or abilities. We confess to you, Lord, our negligence in prayer and worship and our failure to commend the faith that is in us. We confess to you, Lord. Accept our repentance, Lord, for the wrongs we have done for our blindness to human need and suffering and our indifference to injustice and cruelty. Accept our repentance, Lord. For our lack of care and concern for your creation and for the way we have not stewarded well the resources you've given us. Accept our repentance, Lord. For all false judgments, for uncharitable thoughts towards our neighbors and for our prejudice and contempt towards those who differ from us. Accept our repentance, Lord for all the ways we cause suffering in the world by our sin and disobedience and for the way our brokenness results in a world of brokenness. Accept our repentance, Lord. Let's take a moment now for personal confession. Let's seek the Lord individually, asking him to search our hearts, to bring to mind the personal ways we have sinned against him, and then to respond with repentance and heart and mind towards him. So why don't you just take a few moments in the silence of your seat right now.
we close our time of prayer, would you pray this with me? Restore us, good Lord, and let your anger depart from us. Remind us of the work of your salvation by the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus, our Lord. Bring us now to your cross and remind us of your forgiveness in the death of your son, Jesus. We pray to you now. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.